0: This is Africa Digest.
1: Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg and we're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa and on Channel 802 on the DSCV audio bouquet. I'm Amanda Machaga driving the show with Onelins Inzi, Wissani Matibula and Musibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest. Zimbabwe's first lady reportedly fails to report to a South African court to face charges. And relief efforts continue in Sierra Leone following devastating mudslides. In economics, high court sets aside the public protectors of the media election to change the South African Reserve Bank's mandate. And in sport, Kenyan athletes arrive back home from the IWAF World Athletics Championships to a hero's welcome. But first, here's Onela with the news. Thank you, Amanda. The death toll from the massive mudslides in Sierra Leone's capital is certain to rise as workers search for an untold number of people buried in their homes. More than 300 people were killed in and around Freetown on Monday following heavy rains. Many victims were trapped under tons of mud as they slept. Deaths have also been reported in two other parts of the city. The BBC's James Cobb reports. One woman
2: told the BBC that she had lost 11 members of her family. Others spoke of dead children; some were simply too overcome by emotion to talk. The mudslide happened in a place called Regent on the outskirts of the capital Freetown, and submerged at least a hundred houses. By some accounts, as many as two thousand people are now homeless. Most of the people affected lived in informal settlements, apparently built without authorization. Mudslides and flooding are fairly common in Sierra Leone, but not on this scale, and as a result, the emergency services are struggling to cope.
1: Kenya's opposition coalition, the National Super Alliance, has postponed to Wednesday its announcement on its way forward after it rejected the outcome of the presidential results. The coalition says consultations are taking longer than expected. U.S. President Donald Trump has now congratulated President Uhuru Kenyatta on his re-election and called on opposition leader, Raila Odinga, to accept the results or seek legal redress. The opposition claims electoral commission software was hacked in favor of Kenyatta and his party. Zimbabwe First Lady Grace Mugabe will not be handing herself over to police in South Africa as expected. Police say the expected handing over did not materialize and that will, they will continue with their investigation, which they hope to finalize soon. Mugabe allegedly assaulted a 20-year-old model, Gabriela Engel, with an extension cord at a Johannesburg hotel on Sunday. Engel has opened an assault charge against Mugabe at the Senton Police Station north of Johannesburg. National Police spokesperson Vishnaidu.
3: In this case that we are currently investigating now, regarding the 20-year-old that has allegedly been assaulted at a hotel in Santon, we haven't made any arrests as yet. During the preliminary investigations, negotiations began with the legal team of a suspect whom we have identified in this investigation. And in that negotiation, the negotiation was that the suspect will hand herself over to the police. That handing over of the suspect has not materialized as yet. So our investigations are still continuing,
1: Burkina Faso is observing three days of national mourning for 18 people killed in an attack on Sunday on a restaurant in the capital of Agadugu. No groups have yet taken responsibility for the attack. Two of the attackers were killed by the security forces. It is suspected that the attack is a work of one of the affiliates of Al-Qaeda that are active in the Sahel region. And lastly, the International Criminal Court has issued a war crimes arrest warrant against a senior Libyan military commander, Mohammed Mustafa Bousaief. He is accused of involvement in at least seven incidences in 2016 and 2017, in which he allegedly personally shot and ordered the execution of people who were either civilians or injured fighters. A video showing one of the incident involving a 20 to a total of 20 executed persons was posted on social media in July 2017. The ICC set up to investigate the prosecute and prosecute the world's worst crimes opened its probe into Libya in March 2011. Channel African News, I'm Onilene Sinti. Thank you, Anele. It's 1705 Central African Time. You're listening to Africa Digest. Conflicting reports suggest that Zimbabwean First Lady Grace Mugabe is now back in Harare this after allegedly failing to hand herself over to police following assault of a 20-year-old South African woman in Centene, north of Johannesburg. To get clarity on legal issues surrounding this matter, we are now joined on the line by legal expert Dr. Llewellyn Kel-Lewis. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Amana. Is Mrs. Mugabe covered by diplomatic immunity?
4: No, she is not. Uh, the mere fact that she was uh, in South Africa on a visit to look after her health, apparently she sustained an injury in her foot during an incident that took place on the uh, Harare Airport some time ago. It means that she was not here on official uh, capacity on a diplomatic uh, immunity passport. Therefore, uh, no immunity is applicable in this specific instance. Um, and uh, she cannot rely on the mere fact that she's the First Lady of Zimbabwe.
1: In reports others, she has failed to appear in court. What's likely to have happened uh, here?
4: Well, obviously, there are there are includes that she obviously voluntarily hands herself over to the police in which event uh, they can set a date for her to appear in a court South African Court the alternative is if she doesn't do that uh, she can be arrested at any given stage by the police to be brought before a court within 48 hours of the arrest allegedly she decided to make use of the first mention uh, however, it seems to me that she has failed to then hand over subsequently to the police and in all probability, unless there can be some kind of arrangement made by with the legal team to secure her attendance in the South African court, uh, ASAP, uh, chances that she might be arrested whenever she sets foot in South Africa again is li- very likely to happen.
1: And uh, lastly, does South Africa have extradition treaty with Zimbabwe?
4: Yes, we do. Um, in actual fact, all the SADC uh, uh, countries, uh, notably the southern regions of Africa, have an agreement uh, to for this kind of situation. Uh, and I cannot see that she that she will uh, stay out of the country for very long. I mean, mm-hmm. President Robert Mugabe himself has been known to, to make use of uh, a, a lot of South African hospitals over the, the last couple of years. Uh, and uh, the mere fact that she that she tries to hide away in, in Zimbabwe in Harare is to be specific means that at any given time, whenever she sets foot in any international uh, airport or even in the, uh, any uh, border post, she will get arrested unless they can come to some kind of agreement where she voluntarily uh, um, comes to the country and hands her over to the police in order to stand trial for the alleged assault in uh, the previous bodily harm.
1: Well, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thank you. It was lovely speaking to you.
1: That is legal expert Dr. Llewellyn Kell Lewis.
4: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja.
5: Nam, ya Asimu, sasa, kwa Farafina.
4: Farafina.
3: Terra do Soleil.
0: Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do Canal África, a voz de Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul.
6: Sojitika, mu África.
4: Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective.
1: South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Maite Guana Mashabane, has accepted the chairpersonship of the SADC Council of Ministers. She says South Africa will use its tenure as the chair to further the region's development agenda. Pretoria took over the reins from Swaziland. The two-day meeting comes ahead of the 37th Ordinary Summit Heads of States this weekend. Glenda Malangu reports.
3: The Council of Ministers representing the 15 member Southern African Development Community States are meeting to review the progress in the bloc's industrialization strategy. Outgoing chairperson of the Council, Prince Llanguse Mpilamini, handed over the baton to Minister Ngwane Mashabana at the start of the Southern Council of Ministers in Pretoria.
5: There is need for SADC member states to commit themselves to ensure that at least the fund takes off to pave way of a concrete process of resource mobilisation and consolidation of the other proposed uh, smaller uh, SADAC funds. This is more so because our dependency on international cooperation partners to finance investment in the regional programmes and projects is not sustainable
6: and has in fact taken a downward trend over the years. The SADAC Regional Development Fund is an important vehicle for the priorities of industrialisation and infrastructure.
3: The council consists of government ministers from each of the 15 member states, usually from the ministries of foreign affairs, economic planning or finance. The ministers oversees the functioning and development of SADC as a community and ensures that policies are properly implemented. South Africa's minister of international relations, Maidengwana Mashabana, says as regional leaders, they carry a burden of responsibility to substantially improve the quality of life for the people of the region and to realize sustainable, economic development. To this end,
5: we continue to be found to be wanting and to have not done as much as we should. We live, Your Excellencies, in one of the world's richest continents, if not rigid, with the poorest people. This needs to stop somewhere. We are tired of going around with a begging bowl when we have so much for us, from land to all that which you know.
3: The council is expected to receive progress on actions undertaken by the secretariat in implementing the SADC industrialization strategy and roadmap 2015 to 2063. It will also receive and review the proposed milestone for monitoring implementation of the SADC Industrialization Strategy and Roadmap for approval by Summit, amongst others. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlandra Malangu in Johannesburg.
1: South Africa will tomorrow remember the death of 34 miners who were killed during a labor unrest five years ago at a flagship of... Uh, one of the world's largest platinum mines, are Seventy others were injured when police opened fire on them. International rights group Amnesty International has called for the wheels of justice to be fast-tracked for the victims and their families. On August 23rd, the country's president, Jacob Zuma, appointed a commission of inquiry to investigate the tragic incident and events leading to it. The commission subsequently recommended a full investigation under the Director of Public Prosecutions with a view to ascertaining the criminal liability of members of the South African Police Service who were involved in the events at Maragana. To date, however, no police officers involved have been prosecuted. We are now joined on the line by Amnesty International's Executive Director, Shanila Mohammed. Good evening, Shanila, and thank you for joining us.
7: Hi, Amanda, thank you so much for having me.
1: Amnesty has raised concern around key issues that it says are what would have made a difference to the lives of those who lost their loved ones during the massacre. Can you tell us more about this?
7: Yes, I mean, mean, as you rightly said in your introduction, that, you know, on the 16th of August 2012, 34 minors were shot dead by the police and 70 were injured Five years later, we are yet to see people who are responsible for the deaths of these minors being brought to justice. And um, you know, for us, this is really unacceptable. And we are constantly in touch. and And I was in Marikana recently, um, and you know, to see the state of the families, the widows. The people who were affected by that horrible, horrible event, um, where justice has not been served, but and yet their lives have also not improved. They still live in unacceptable conditions. You know, they live in in in, in um, shacks. They don't have water. You know, there's a lot of of um, uh, of, of horrible things that uh, that they were having to endure, and you know, not knowing um, what exactly happened that day and who is to be responsible, makes the whole situation even worse for them.
1: And one of your representatives earlier said that the lack of action against those responsible for the killings is politically motivated. Can you elaborate on this?
7: Well, you know, if you look at the way in which things have happened, I mean, you know, as you rightly said, President Zuma uh, set up uh, the Fallen Commission, um, you know, who were supposed to look into exactly what happened. And if you look at the findings of the Farm Commission, I mean, as you rightly said, you know, the Fulham Commission said that uh, an investigation had to be done. Uh, but one of the other things the Fulham Commission said was that, you know, the police operation on the 16th of August 2012 was triggered by the decision the night before by senior police officers, officials to forcibly disarm and disperse the strikers despite forcing bloodshed. And the Fulham Commission described this decision as reckless and inexplicable and as the decisive cause of the deaths. Um, in, May, uh, in March this year, the Police Investigative Directorate, ICUD, um, told Parliament that, um, that they had recommended a list of 72 police officers who they've identified for prosecution. And that list includes the former National Police Commissioner, Ria Piega, as well as um, other police officers who were responsible or who were believed to have been responsible. And they recommended that these um, people be charged uh, with charges that would range from murder, assault, defeating the cause of uh, the ends of justice, to perjury Um, and then in May this year I could handed over the dockets to the National Prosecuting Authority so you know May and we're now in August we still have heard nothing so you know what we're calling for is you know for for the government to um, to to take uh, the decision and and for the National National Prosecuting Authority to take the advice of their own internal investigative uh, authority and um, and and prosecute those that are responsible. And yes, we feel that one of the stumbling blocks is a lack of political will. Had there been political will, we wouldn't have been waiting five years for this to happen. And the reality is that the poor and marginalized people of South Africa don't have the access to justice in the same way that... You know, uh, uh, many other people have. The, the wheels of justice turn very slowly, and we feel that this is really unacceptable.
1: Mm. And what do you make of the case against the 17 uh, Maragana strike leaders by the NPA?
7: Well, there you go. I mean, there, there is your classic example of what we're saying. You know, the fact that. Um, the minors were then uh, uh, arrested and, and charged and, and some of them are facing murder charges Whereas not one police official has been held to account. You know, that that, indi- that is, is clear evidence of what I'm talking about. You know, clearly, uh, and, and, and we're not for one second Saying that the the people who are responsible for the murders of the two policemen and the security uh, uh, of um, the security um, um, officers should not be brought to account. Yes, they should do. Uh, you know, any unlawful killing should be the people who perpetrated should be held to account. But if you look at you know that case versus the fact that seventy four I mean uh, thirty four people were killed and a couple you know at least ten. Uh, in addition to that, in the lead-up to uh, that incident, and nobody has been brought to account.
1: And you mentioned earlier, Shanila, the living conditions of, of, of the families of, of those miners. Uh, can you tell us about what you witnessed when you visited some of the families in Marokana last month?
7: Well, you know, when when um, mining companies are given permission to mine, they, they agree to uh, a, a national plan where they basically... Uh, Say that they are going to deliver some sort of development for the for the people of, of the, the community and you know I mean London was supposed to have according to their plan was supposed to have delivered um, five thousand five hundred houses um, and but you know by 2011 mm-hmm. but by 2011 they had only um, built three houses and you know that is For me, I mean, that is just, you know, the fact that they feel that they can get away with it, um, you know, and that they're not held to account. I mean, the reason they get those mining licenses is because they agree to these development plans. And if they do not deliver on them, then the licenses should be revoked and they should not be allowed to go in there and mine. Um, and so, you know, you go to Marikana and you see the state in which people are living. They are still living in shacks. Mm. You know, when you think about the millions that are being made by the plat- from the platinum, I mean, surely the people of Marikana can benefit. Surely they can be given living conditions that can be classified as human and can, can you know, have all their basic human rights um, uh, given to them. But this is not the case. And I feel that, you know, that is one of the things, you know, and also the the, the people who were uh, killed or the the families of the victims, you know, they've not received any compensation. They've not uh, received anything. Uh, yes, Lonman has given some of the widows jobs, but you know, what happened to the family? Mm. The breadwinner was taken away from them in on that fateful day. And, you know, a lot of the people uh, that are affected are suffering. And this is just unacceptable, especially in a country that has the resources that South Africa has. And especially in an area where people are making millions out of the platinum resources.
1: Mm. Now, uh, is Amnesty hopeful that justice will eventually be served?
7: Well, I think that, you know, it's, we we do and, and, you know, we are hopeful. We are really, really, um, uh, you know, we feel that, uh, you know, IPED needs to be, um, uh, you know, congratulated for, for taking the step and for putting forward, for doing the investigation, for uh, coming up with the, the names of 72 uh, police officers that they recommend that should be charged. And now we're waiting to see whether the MPA steps up to the plate. So we are hopeful. No, um, it, it was only in May that I could, I could send that forward. So, you know, we're hopeful that the MPA will, will step up to the plate and that the victims of the Marikana massacre will get justice.
1: Thank you so much for your time.
7: Thank you very much.
1: That was Shanila Mohamed, Executive Director of Amnesty International, joining us on the line.
4: This is Channel Africa. South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective.
8: Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French, and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalun Yenzovo, and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Africa
5: from
4: African Channel Africa bringing you the
1: African perspective. It's 22 minutes past 5 p.m. Central African time. The medical agency Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, is concerned by an outbreak of hepatitis E in Nigeria's Bono state in the Nagla camp, where four pregnant women have died in the past two months. The camp for internally displaced persons, or IDPs, currently hosts about 45,000 people who have fled violence from Boko Haram. MSF says the situation in Nagla camp is very worrying, especially with the onset of the rainy season a recipe for bacteria and disease. For more on the issue, here's MSF Southern Africa Head of Field Recruitment James Kambaki.
6: I think the situation is quite uh, severe. They have declared an outbreak. There is uh, already more than 400 cases of hepatitis E that has been reported in the past two months, and uh, there is about 170 patients uh, at the hospital who have being treated uh, because of hepatitis E. And uh, I think there is also um, uh, four deaths, the result of hepatitis E, mostly from uh, pregnant women. So that is uh, the severe magnitude of the of the situation at the moment. The cause of this outbreak, of course, it's brought about by poor sanitation, and uh, this has been uh, exacerbated by the floods that have taken as uh, heavy rains, and then there has been floods. And with that, uh, of course, uh, the latrines has been uh, overflown, and you know people will always defecate out of out of latrines, uh, and this has gone into uh, people's houses and. Uh, the situation is just messy, and we know for uh, that uh, the transmission of this, that it is mainly is from the contamination of water. So this is the situation at the moment; uh, it's quite dire. How
0: is MSF responding, and how is that going?
6: um We have a hospital uh, in that uh, camp uh, that we actually respond in treating the, the most severe. As I said, 170 patients uh, at our hospital, and then we also have arranged. Uh, quite a big health promotion uh, programme that goes into the community uh, trying to educate the community about how they could actually like prevent the disease. They're distributing soap and chlorine that could actually purify the water before they drink it. So it's, it's a massive uh, intervention that we are doing at the moment.
0: And just how big is the population in this camp?
6: The camp has about 45,000 uh, internally displaced people, and uh, and, and I think this number always keep increasing because they cross. Also, some people cross from the neighboring countries of Cameroon to come into that camp. So that's the number that we have to so speak.
0: And now, finally, just to conclude, James, what more needs to be done to be able to contain this outbreak?
6: I think a lot of health education needs to be done. First of all, the, the context, you know, the Boko Haram conflict is mm. still there. So that makes it even much more difficult because of security situation to intervene. The terrain is much more, more difficult now because getting to, to different places is, is difficult. It's rainy, you need four by fours and things like that. So I think there is need for more organizations to get into, into support what they have done in Bono State.
1: Thus James Kambaki, Head of Field Recruitment at Doctors Without Borders, Southern Africa. He was talking to Jane Rabutada. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world.
6: Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa.
1: Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa.
4: For Channel Africa, I am Kumbera Munjore in Johannesburg.
3: Channel Africa Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze.
5: Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa,
1: bringing you the African perspective. South Africa's Department of Agriculture in the Western Cape province has confirmed the outbreak of a bird flu in two ostrich farms in the Hidopark area. The farms had been placed under quarantine and no birds were allowed to enter or leave the properties during uh, the investigation. The department suspects that the highly pathogenic avian influenza H5N8 disease was spread by wild birds. In Southern Africa, the H5N8 strain of the disease also affected the poultry industry in Zimbabwe, but Thousands of commercial birds have died. Thirteen outbreaks have occurred in South Africa since June this year, thus far in Pumalanga and Gauteng. Spokesperson for the Agriculture Department, Petro van Rijn, explains.
7: There were earlier outbreaks uh, in South Africa, but not yet in the Western Cape. So last week we did some routine uh, investigations for export, and then we picked up at Heidelberg through throat swaps that were done on the birds so that these two farms were positive. But we immediately took, uh, took measures. Like you said earlier, these farms were immediately put under quarantine so that there's no birds moved from or to the farms. Uh, we put in biosecurity measures in terms of hygiene so that when people come in or vehicles come onto those farms, that they've been checked, you know, not to contaminate the birds any further further. We have now increased our measures where we're also looking at farms in a three-kilometre radius of these two farms, testing those birds as well. So we're really taking all uh, precautionary measures to contain this disease at the moment. Mm.
8: Now, as of this morning, Beatru, there was no decision that had been made to cull any of the 1,000 birds affected. Uh, what's the latest on that?
7: So definitely not calling at this stage. At this stage, our veter- veterinarians are still busy testing. They are still busy testing uh, the exact strain of this avian influenza. And one thing about this strain is that the birds actually show no clinical sim- symptoms so they're not sick so we're just waiting it uh, out whilst the testing are still ongoing before we, we make that extreme measure.
8: Is the flu infectious to people Beatri and what are the preventative measures that the province um, has, uh, has put to play in terms of stopping the spread of the disease? Okay, so
7: definitely no harm for people. There's absolutely,
8: um, it's uh,
7: not contagious for people at all. The ostrich meat, chicken meat, um, is still, people can still buy it. There's no problem with that at the moment. So as far as, as people are concerned, uh, that, that's not a, a concern. In terms of preventative, we do want to urge, you know, people that if they do find dead birth or if they do find that their birds get sick that they just immediately contact the local state veterinarian, the local authorities, so that we can just pick it up as quickly as possible, so just really, and and communication like this, like this radio interview, just uh, Mm. uh, alerting people that it is out there, they're just aware, because obviously we have to be extremely responsible for this, and this is a control disease, and uh, we just want to make sure that people are informed,
8: exactly a sick bird. Is there any collaboration on that front uh, with other affected countries, particularly in the region? And to get to the bottom of this, considering that you're saying that it is highly likely from migratory birds.
7: Well, I know that obviously working very closely with the other provinces in South Africa where it has been mm. identified, but I'm not sure about uh, other countries. Mm. But I'm sure it is that is something that you know that the scientists will work out because I mean they can just learn from each other, alert each other. So definitely, mm. I think that is that is common practice that, that they will talk to each other.
1: Mm. That was Rain, spokesperson of the South African Department of Agriculture in the Western Cape Province, talking to Zuconamiso. Time now for our news headlines with Onelin Zense. The death toll from massive mudslides in Sierra Leone's capital is certain to rise as workers search for an untold number of people buried in their homes. Kenya's opposition coalition, the National Super Alliance, has postponed to Wednesday its announcement on its way forward after it rejected the outcome of the presidential results. And Zimbabwe First Lady Grace Mugabe will not be handing herself over to the police in South Africa as expected. Channel African News, I'm Onelian Cincy. Thank Thank you, Onele, for that news update. Donated organs have saved the lives of many hundreds of thousands of people across the world, including South Africa. It is for this reason that the South African Medical Association, SAMA, is urging all South Africans to consider listing themselves as organ donors. The country is marking Organ Donor Month this month to raise awareness on the critical deficiency of donor organs. To speak to us more about this, we are now joined on the line by SAMA's vice uh, chairperson, Professor Mark Sonderab. Good evening and thank you for joining us.
9: Hi, Amanda. Evening. Thanks for having me.
1: Why is it important that South Africans list themselves as organ donors?
9: Yeah, you know, I think that, um, as we indicated in our in our press statement, there was this wonderful um, uh, sort of messaging from the Organ Donor Foundation a couple of years ago that sort of said, don't take your organs to heaven because heaven knows we need them. And it kind of sums everything up because... We do need them. There are uh, probably 4,300 people in South Africa waiting for um, organ transplants as well as cornea transplants. We just look at cornea transplants. We look at people who are able to be offered the, the opportunity to see again and to see properly again. And, I mean, that's just a remarkable thing in terms of somebody's ability to function and live and have a quality of life again. In terms of of actual organ donation and yeah, we talk about um, uh, kidneys and and hearts and liver donation for example it's people waiting with end-stage disease of those organ systems who without transplantation are going to die and if if somebody who is invariably um, um, in these situations uh, declared brain dead then then their ability to offer that gift of life or more often and more specifically, their family's ability to offer that gift of life is is, is utterly amazing. It offers you know somebody a chance at a quality of life, and mm. to be able to return to productive levels of functioning again, and that's good for the person. It's it's good for the it's good for families, and it's good for the country. And mm. um, as I said, you know, if if somebody has been declared brain dead, and 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 they're no longer going to have need of those organs that can be donated, then offering it to somebody else who can actually go on to live a productive life is the most amazing gift anybody can give.
1: Would you say that we have a critical shortage of organ donors in the country and in which organs are in demand? Yeah, I mean,
9: I think we must remind ourselves, you know, we suffer from this, Affliction in South Africa, and we always think we're special, but we're not. You know, the issues of organ organ shortages are, are, are something that is the world over, mm. and it it reflects the mismatch between the growing need for people with end stage um, organ diseases that that where transplantation has become an inevitability or, or a possibility, should I say, and the fact that we don't have the match in terms of the availability of of, of suitable donors. And, and, and so we do have a shortage, and probably the biggest area where there's, a, where there's a real challenge is in the area of kidney transplantation. There we can offset the kidney transplantation side of things a little bit by the fact that with kidney transplants, of course, people can do what's called living donor transplantation. Mm-hmm. In that, for example, if your brother or sister requires a kidney and you're a suitable match, Can actually take one of your kidneys and transplant it into them, and uh, that can be very successful with absolutely no harm to yourself long term. Living with one kidney, it's as though we kind of were blessed with two kidneys, but we can live perfectly normal and productive lives with one. So, so, so that's a part. You know, that's part of 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 trying to deal with that backlog. But you must remember that. One of the big burdens of, of disease, particularly in South Africa, and may I add for sub-Saharan Africa, in fact, mm. is the growing what we call non-communicable diseases of high blood pressure, diabetes, and other other issues. And we know the rates of chronic uh, chronic um, disease of the kidney, uh, resulting in end-stage disease where people potentially require dialysis to 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 continue living in the absence of of um, um, optimal kidney function uh, becomes an, an inevitability. That is growing in Africa and so the need for people requiring dialysis is growing particularly in the public sector. We're very challenged. It's an expensive intervention. We limited how much we can offer that to people and the only way of getting somebody off dialysis in fact is by transplanting them and, and that opens up the space again for someone else to access dialysis. So Transplantation is a very important intervention, so in your question around what's the most critical area, it really is around kidneys in particular, mm. but that doesn't mean there's not an issue around other
1: organs as mm, well. All right. Is there enough awareness created, though, at the moment about the need for, uh, as well as the benefits of organ and tissue uh, donation?
9: Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of what Organ Donor Month, in fact, is about, is trying to just message and, and raise that awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, but it shouldn't just be about one month. It's really about the whole year. And I think groups like the Organ Donor Foundation and also within the various transplant centers in South Africa, the transplant coordinators, have been doing a huge amount of work over the last few years to so trying to bridge those social and cultural issues in our country Around what people's perception of organ donation actually is, because often when you get down to it, uh, people's reluctance to 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 uh, to consider organ donation often comes down to misconceptions and, and misunderstandings. And when people just get a bit educated and understand really what it's all about, they say, "Oh, you know, really, is that you know? I had this idea, that idea." Hmm. And, and 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 getting around that is really important because. We have a very culturally diverse um, country, so we have to message and target and educate at, at a whole lot of levels and understanding for people. And I think, by and large, the groups like the Organ Donor Foundation are doing very well in that area. We are growing that, that, that levels of education and understanding that this is not something mystical or, or, or some sort of practice of witchcraft, as sometimes people think it is.
8: Hmm.
9: Um, it, it's not about that. It's about actually doing something before that uh, that situation arrives. So people can list themselves as organ donors. You can put it on your credit, you know, on your on your ID, on your on your driver's license. But most importantly, families need to have this discussion because if you you know if you are a potential organ donor you're invariably in a situation where you're not going to be around to make those decisions it's your family who has to make that decision very good for them to know what your wishes are so you need to express those wishes to your family and, and people need to have these discussions in the cold light of day because you never know when it happens you know we we, we, we really pray to god that, that that doesn't happen to somebody that they're actually in a situation where they are are potentially brain-dead and are in a situation where families may have to consider organ donation. It's very comforting to families to know that they've had those discussions with their loved ones and they know what their wishes are and they feel comfortable making those decisions.
1: And lastly, Professor, what would you say are the key things that people should consider before becoming organ donors and what steps can they follow if they want to donate organs?
9: Yeah, I mean, so I think the key issues to for people to understand is just to know uh, that uh, if people have cultural or religious objections, I think it's very good to engage with their religious leaders around these issues, and 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 firstly just satisfy their own sense of what this is about, and 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 in their in 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 their religious context or scripts, what does it actually say about organ donation? When you look at the major religions, in fact, nothing is actually said. There's nothing preventing it, okay? And 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 it's important to have those conversations. You know, Amanda. Often people feel uh, because often they are just religious objections. If people just feel comfortable from their religious leaders that they've been made to feel okay mm. that they want to they want to be an organ donor, that actually already is ninety percent of the battle won. Around cultural issues, that's something that communities need to talk about and be educated about and that's the kind of work that's done and and then talk within your families as well about how you feel about organ donation. if you feel that way as I said you can register with the organ donor foundation or you can actually list as an organ donor on your on your driver's license for example you can carry a card that says I'm an organ donor so that that can be done but just remember even though you do that the legal requirement is that your family or next of kin has to ultimately give consent that's why it's so important to have those conversations with your loved ones.
1: All right. Thank you very much for your time.
9: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's Professor Mark Sonderop, Vice Chairperson of the South African Medical Association, SAMA. Red Cross volunteers are digging for survivors and supporting distraught families in the wake of heavy flooding and mudslides that have ripped through Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown. Current estimates indicate that as many as 3,000 have been made homeless. Although this figure is expected to rise as the picture becomes clearer, the mass lights come following three days of torrential rains. Spokesperson for the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, Matthew Ucrucrain, elaborates on their efforts. I
2: think the, the picture you've painted is, is, is probably very similar to, to what's happening on the ground. Um, there's still frantic uh, search and rescue efforts, although... Our colleagues are now really characterising these as, as a recovery efforts. So as the hours pass, it's less and less likely that, that more survivors will be found. So the focus is on
0: mm-hmm. recovering
2: the people and recovering the bodies of the people who, who've died, um, but also on supporting survivors and supporting families who've gone through a terrible ordeal, and as well as the thousands of people who are now homeless and will need support get through the coming weeks.
8: Now I can imagine that of course the death toll is set to rise uh, considering that yeah. you say that you are still um, looking uh, for more bodies. Um, just how difficult is this rescue operation Matthew?
2: I'm sure some of your listeners will have seen uh, seen the pictures coming out of Sierra Leone really talking about what a, cha- a colleague of mine has has, has characterised as just a, a wall of mud, a river of mud that just came out of nowhere and, and wiped away Entire communities, including some of the the poorest uh, communities in Freetown, on the on the outskirts of of, of Freetown, so the conditions are incredibly difficult. Um, and uh, the hope of, of finding survivors is, uh, is, is
8: rapidly reduced. I know that um, the Red Cross, says, as you know, is providing um, all kinds of assistance uh, to uh, survivors whose homes have been destroyed. Um, tell us a little bit about those efforts.
2: Well, in addition to the, the search and rescue and and, and, uh, and and the recovery efforts, they're also carrying people to, to the hospitals, providing first aid to to people on site, providing basic relief items and assistance to to people on site, and then also critically, certainly, and will be increasingly critical over the coming days, providing emotional and psychosocial support to families. And there's been awful stories; I'm sure you've seen them of of, of, um, of parents who lost their children, of, of of husbands who lost lost their wives, and, and 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 vice versa. So the emotional needs of people um, will be uh, absolutely are absolutely critical to to, to support and to address. Um, Looking ahead, though, there there are thousands of people who've lost their homes. They'll need support perhaps with emergency shelter. Um, and there's also the ever-present fear of uh, disease outbreaks that follow any flood or, or mudslide when there's stagnant water, when sanitation systems have been have been knocked out of action. So the assistance will kind of will ebb and flow and, and probably change in the coming days at the moment. It's search and rescue, recovery, emotional support and first aid, but we'll begin quite quickly to, to turn into... Longer-term,
3: mm.
8: uh,
2: longer-term support and preventative health.
8: Are you properly capacitated at this stage, Matthew? Um, as uh, you know, uh, as an operation at this time, and um, what are some of the things that um, you foresee um, needing um, in the next couple of, of days and months, so to speak?
2: Well, we've, our Secretary-General has just, uh, just announced um, uh, an allocation from our, our Global Disaster Relief Emergency Fund. So that'll provide much-needed cash resources for, for Red Cross volunteers and Red Cross personnel on the ground to make sure that they have the, the supplies in hand. I mean, obviously, uh, Sierra Leone is one of the countries that was affected terribly by the, um, the the West Africa Ebola outbreak. What that means from a Red Cross perspective is that we still have uh, some uh, emergency resources uh, in the country, so those resources, those supplies can be diverted uh, quite easily. Um, the IFRC has a, a small team of, of, of experts there working alongside the Red cross volunteers there's been dozens of red cross volunteers who've been out out and about and many of them have benefited i imagine from what I understand from uh, from their involvement in uh, in the Ebola operation and other emergency response operations so as it stands now there seems to be uh, good capacity but it, you know we're also at the beginning of a disaster and 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 these these situations can change the picture can worsen quite quickly and and quite dramatically so um, at the moment, we feel that there's, there's,
1: there's, there's capacity, but again, that might change. That's Amethi Cochrane of the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Christian Societies on the line talking to Zekona Miso. Up next is our economics news with Wisani Matabula.
5: Good evening. Thanks, Amanda. South African Reserve Bank Governor Leseja Khanyaho has welcomed the decision by the High Court in the capital Pretoria to set aside the Public Protector's remedial action to change the South African Reserve Bank's mandate. Public Protector Busisi Kwebane has been ordered by the High Court to pay the legal costs.
6: Well, we, welcome the, we welcome the judgment, and um, I think that we will let the uh, judgment uh, speak for itself. We have posted it on our website and um, I've got nothing further to say other than to say that we welcome it. The mandate of the reserve Bank is spelled out in the constitution and uh, that is what we have always uh, argued for and uh, it is one of the original constitutional principles and the courts have that but uh, uh, have decided to set aside the issue of the public protection and uh, we welcome it.
5: And as part of uh, commemorating five years uh, since the Marikana tragedy, South African-based mining company Lonmin has unveiled a plan to build a memorial site. The memorial site will be in honour of the 34 mine workers who died, as well as 10 others who died before the shooting on 16 August 2012. Lonmin CEO Ben Magara. Today, apart from commemorating, apart from the tears that will still come again even in 10 years, we are saying... It is also important to celebrate their lives because they have led us to here. And it is our duty, those who are alive as stakeholders, that this never happens again. Zimbabwe has clashed uh, uh, with the World Bank over its inaugural command maize scheme, which it has failed or hailed for boosting uh, production of the staple maize grain in the 2016-2017 farming season. However, the World Bank recently expressed reservations over the scheme, saying the initiative stretched the country's budget deficit and that it was politically motivated. Sikla Zuma reports.
1: Under the sponsored scheme, selected farmers were given inputs such as seed, fertilizer and chemicals as well as irrigation and mechanized equipment to grow maize. The farmers would repay the cost of the inputs. The government has hailed the program for contributing significantly to maize production which topped 2.1 million tons this year from 512,000 tons in 2016 and more than the annual national requirement of 1.8 million tons. Agriculture Minister Joseph Made was quoted by the state-run Herald newspaper on Friday as saying that the command maize scheme was meant to boost food security in the country and cut government's maize import bill.
5: Egypt has a contract uh, to buy 850,000 tons of sugar so far this year, covering the nation's needs uh, through January. Traders say a total of 750,000 tons of sugar had been booked through state buyers since February. Egypt typically consumes about uh, 3 million tonnes of sugar a year but produces a little more than 2 million tonnes. The gap is filled by government and private imports usually purchased between July and October. Financial indicators now. The US dollar trading at 13.34 South African at 10.14, Botswana Pula 8.95 against the, the Zambian kwacha, also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.84 against the euro. Commodities, gold, $1,283. Platinum, $974 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is at $52.08 per barrel. And that's your economics news right now.
1: Thank you, Isani. Up next is our sports news with Musibuti Makura.
0: Good evening sports fans, I am Usibu Di Makura with your latest sports news at the Sawam. And starting off with Athletics News, Team Kenya arrived back home to a hero's welcome from the World Athletics Championships in London earlier this morning. Now Kenya finished second in the medal standings with a total of 11 medals comprising of five gold, two silver and four bronze medals. Here is the chairman of the Athletics Kenya Federation General, Jackson Tawi, wrapping up Kenya's performance at the Global show. Piece.
5: the London championship was tricky and very unpredictable that is how I will sum up that competition in London very tricky and very unpredictable and that is why you found some of the um, champions who had won in Beijing two years ago had a very difficult time in defending their their events Unfortunately, before we left Buenos Aires, we were dealt with quite a number of injuries to our athletes. That is why you did not see David Rudisha, who was supposed to be the defending champion in 800 meters. You did not see uh, Nicholas Bates there.
0: Meanwhile, Kenya is set to launch a bid to host the Athletics World Championships in the year 2023 after successfully staging two other international competitions in the last 10 years. No other African nation has ever staged the sports flagship event, but Kenyan Sports Minister Hassan Waru says Kenya has shown its capability when it brought together athletes from around 130 countries to compete in the IAAF World Under-18 Championships in Nairobi Angeles month now waru echoed the recent call by the confederation of african athletics president Ahmad kalkagba malbom for africa to be awarded the world championships by the year 2025 malbom says uh, that six african countries including kenya are capable of hosting such an event well, South African University women coach Tina Singko Mbuli says their main ambitions is to reach the knockout stages of the World Student Championships in Taipei, Taiwan. The 29th edition of the Games will kick off from the 19th until the 31st of this month. The team finished in 14th position at the previous Games in South Korea two years ago, but will be hoping to improve this time around.
3: The main ambition is to improve on that. And just before we left, our last team talk at home. Because sometimes when you go to tournament, it's always the coach who has the goal, not the players. And then this time we ask them, what is your goal? And they said they want to go all out. All out is in playing quarter, quarter, semi. And once you reach the knockout stages, it becomes anyone, anyone is lucky. Anyone who's lucky then goes through. But our goal is to go to next round. And then from next round, we take it game by game, game by game, because it's knockout.
0: The team arrived in the hot Tepe on Monday away from the cold winter conditions back home. The temperatures in the Taiwanese capital are averaging 35 degrees in the afternoon. Mbuli is worried about the extreme heat and humidity. First, I start with the environment. It's okay. The setup looks okay. The problem that we might have is the heat.
3: Because even yesterday, we, we struggled to some of the players struggled to sleep because of the hours and the heat
0: but we we manage. And finally local netball news Zanelam Dodana the former captain of the country's national team and now the assistant coach of the Spa Protea Fast 5 team says she was impressed with the standard of netball that was displayed at the recently concluded Spa National Netball Championships in Durban how they were crowned champions this past weekend for the first time beating 2016 champions the Western Cape Mdodana who will be heading to Australia for the Fast 5 World Series says there's a lot of talent netball players in the country.
3: Well, I think the standard is is quite good and I mean being a new coach uh, at the the University of Stellenbosch this is also a place where I can also come and recruit and look and see the players. Uh, I've already recruited two players that are currently playing here so it's also good for me to see how they're performing against the best players in the country. So it's really it's it's a great platform it's a great opportunity and you see all the coaches around the country are here because this is also where they, they actually find players to bring to the
0: universities. While the Zaya Sports News at the Sun, stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest.
1: 1756 Central African Time. Let's do a quick recap of our top stories right here on Africa Digest. Zimbabwe's first lady reportedly fails to report to a South African court to face charges. And relief efforts continue in Sierra Leone following devastating mudslides. That wraps up Africa Digest this hour. From myself, Amanda Machaga, producer Leanda Maome, technical producer Wiseman Mangale, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email to info at You can also SMS us to plus 27796957930. We are also on Twitter. Our handle is at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is a Fall by Davido.